Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, we will debate on how to improve gender gap in academic fields. Today, to moderate this session, I am welcoming Professor Eric Trepo, hepatologist, group leader at University Libre from Belgium. I am also very pleased to introduce you to our two experts, Dr. Ea Utoft, Assistant Professor of Gender and Diversity Studies at Habu University in the Netherlands, and Professor Dina Barabanova, Professor of Health Systems and Policy at the London School of Asian and Tropical Medicine. I would like to illustrate the gender gap in academia in a visual manner, in a short way. Indeed, both in science, in the bottom part of the slide and in medical field in the top part of the slide, although there is about 50 to 60% of women in early career med schools and PhD programs, there is only around 15 to 20% of women in executive researcher or full professor position. So there is a gap and there is a lot of room for improvement. And today I would like to focus mainly on the solutions. Yeah, maybe I, I should start with the first question. So, uh, you know, in many families, it is still considered unsuitable uh, for women to invest in their careers because they have to raise children, etc. Do you think that there is a role of education in uh, changing stereotypes? Um, I can go first uh, and say, well, yes, education can play a part, but I think also education is part of creating uh, the problem. Uh, so, of course, gendered social roles come from somewhere and they are also taught uh, and we learn them in school. So I think uh, there's a fundamental problem to address in how in how teaching happens in uh, from when we're very, very young. Um, I can also mention that in the uh, in the context of the European uh, research area, uh, which is a collaboration of uh, researchers within Euro uh, within Europe, uh, they've been for many years promoting uh, uh, three specific gender equality related goals. And one of them is to integrate sex and gender analysis into teaching and into research content. And I would be surprised, to be honest, if, if uh, the listeners or the viewers here of the session will be familiar with this goal. It's not a very widespread practice, even though uh, the European research area has been promoting this for quite a long time. And my final point to this would also be that we might have an idea that uh, education, uh, both from a young age, but also at university can play a role in um, in, in challenging our traditional gender stereotypes and gendered roles that were ascribed in society. Um, but also at the moment, we're faced with really strong opposition on uh, no movements towards doing these things. Uh, Anti-gender movements are, are prevalent. And, and that this, of course, plays a, a part in, in why these things are not already, already happening. Mm. So, 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 in concrete, what are what are the measures that you think we? I mean, in school, in girls, girls, or in, in in university, in med school, what are the measures that should be implemented based on the accommodation? 
I mean, of course, uh, educators themselves have to have knowledge of how gendered power dynamics uh, play out. So that's a place to start. Um, but then also, of course, uh, in, in primary school, uh, younger, younger children, younger girls need to be educated in a non-gendered way so that uh, we don't see this discrepancy uh, happening later on where um, women are underrepresented in the STEM fields. Uh, so uh, it, it's a whole, it's a, it's not, there's not, sadly, there is no uh, one uh, simple solution to this. This is a, a complex problem that requires complex solutions at all levels. If I can add a few things, um, this was a brilliant introduction to the topic. But I think from the UK perspective, what we have observed is a lot of positive change uh, in education. For example, we see a lot of girls outperform boys in STEM subjects. And this is really what we see in the past 10 years. However, um, I think the problem with the continued gap is somewhere down the line or it is something around social norms. So, for example, um, we see there a lot of studies are showing the persisting triple burden for women in life, and that would be paid work and paid domestic duties, caring duties, and also communal ob communal obligations. This is something that persists. So, um, if you imagine a young woman, young girl going to school and being exposed to all these new ideas, however, she comes home and she sees again the same dynamic and the society tells her that once you maybe get married and have children you are the one who have to take care and we see this a lot during um, crises and recessions for example uh, during um covid we there are statistics that actually women were the ones who stayed home more to a large extent a large study just demonstrated that this uh, impacted significantly on publication record and publication record is the tip of the iceberg it's really the grants and people not getting into the lucrative um, opportunities to publish but also to get grants so women were stuck at home to a large extent and this has impact so this we see this in other crisis so it's not just COVID we see this in recessions where women are more likely to take a, a part-time low-paid job. So there is this expectation in our society about the woman should be more sacrificing herself for the family. And very often that's an economic argument because the woman may be earning less. So it makes sense from the family point of view to for her to do it. But ultimately this is damaging to, to the career prospects. And um, I think changing this, how do we change this culture? Um, I think it's changing slowly. However, we do see a lot of backlash. So this was really unexpected. The study I quoted actually showed that even in areas where there was very good parity between um, men and women in publishing and getting grants during COVID, uh, these were the biggest losses. Women as first daughter had the biggest decline. So that's what we have to be careful is that the smallest cry or the big crisis, but even the small crisis, they lead to women taking making these choices. So what can we do at societal level? I think that's a big question. Thank, thank you, uh, Dina. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. So I guess COVID is not an old story. Yeah? We are still having this. Yeah. And um, okay. And for the measure, I mean, being a woman in academia, I feel the only measures that are implemented right now are quota and parental leave equivalence. I mean, for me, in my field, that's the only thing I see, at least, and I'm aware of. And I don't know if it's 
still enough? Is it good? Is if it's bad? You know, I've been in thousands of discussions in the hospital, in the lab, with the quota. You know, there is always those people who are saying that. And even as a woman, sometimes I feel it. I want to have a position or a grant because of my merits, of my abilities, of, you know, and I wouldn't want to take a position be- just because I'm a female, you know, just because of the gender quota. So sometimes it kind of makes me feel bad, even if I know it's not politically correct to say that as a woman, because we have to say, okay, quota are good. And, but you know what I mean? And, and, it, and it's something that is used as an argument against it also. And so is it still good? Is it still enough? What, what, what is your opinion about that? I mean, is it an efficient measure, in fact? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if it's... And it's kind of give, give maybe a, a, a bad image, you know? You see what I mean? Well, certainly the literature would say, well, if we want change, it is the most efficient uh, measure that we have. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best or the only one. Um, but I really noticed where, in what you were saying before uh, that you, uh, you, you were also embracing this idea of your merit. And for quotas to be welcome in university, we first need to completely dispel this myth that we exist in a meritocracy, because we don't. Merit is a, uh, is a myth, um, and we already have a preference for somebody. So when we implement a preferential treatment, such as a quota, or preferential selection in when we recruit somebody, we just make a different uh, preference. So I think uh, that's the place to start. And uh, for as long as as meritocracy uh, lives as this uh, this utopic status that it has now as something that we already sort of navigate within that anybody who gets a grant or anybody who gets a professorship is necessarily always the best candidate well, then we will never see support for quotas. Um, yeah, and I will be. You, I was interested in the fact that you were saying that uh, uh, you that they are common or that quotas are widespread. They are not, in my uh, experience. I don't know where they are implemented at universities, for example. I know that they are in politics somewhere in the, in different countries, but I've never seen them implemented in in universities until now. I may be wrong, of course, um, but at least in the context that I've been. Uh, been been part of um they are they cause they cause a very very strong opposition and i think this is linked with um with the fact that we are scientists and especially in the scientific fields such as the stem fields and medical sciences but also part of the social sciences where positivist uh, research uh, practices prevail we have this idea of, uh, well, we are researchers and we practice uh, scientific objectivity. So uh, if there are people in this world who are able to objectively assess other people uh, in, for example, a recruitment process, then it would be us. But we're kidding ourselves, to be honest. Um, we know this from, from the literature. Uh, there, um, there are so many ways that bias can enter and distort uh, the recruitment process. In many cases, you only have a very few applicants for specific positions. So it is never an open competition for a job in academia, I'm afraid. Yeah, thank you very much. It was very interesting and very like very discussion like a few days ago with, with Eric also about how to select candidates and all that. And you know, we like exactly. metrics. As you say, we like metrics, you know, we like to have the Ashandex, number of publication, the thing, but then we I guess we need to get out of metrics. But how do we get out of metrics when we want to compare people, you know, to to do like a, a competition, you know? 
I mean, I've just written a, or read a, a book where one of the selection criteria for for recruitment uh, was who would you like to have a pint with? So, I mean, these things exist. I mean, we don't want to recognize that this is, this is happening, but it is happening. Yeah. So, if I can add, um, so two, I agree completely with there that um, quotas are not common in academic institutions, but we do discuss other ways of positive discrimination, of course. Um, however, one problem I find that we talk about gender gap. However, um, people have multiple social identities and really, really, really need to think about okay, if we have quota or any other positive discrimination, who is it targeted to? Um, in the UK, for example, you could have other factors that affect identity, such as and, and discrimination, possible discrimination, um, race, um, could be social class. This is very kind of interacting with gender. So you may think of somebody who is a woman who maybe is in early career, would she need more help than somebody who is, say, we know that people from ethnic minorities in the UK have really lower performance that's documented. And so who do we target? How do we fine tune this process? I think that's one big issue. But also I'll advocate for an approach which thinks about changing the structures. So if we take academic institutions, there are systemic and structural factors which affect um, various stages of career progression for women um, and i think um, there are systemic biases which are not even individual they're systemic the system is organized in this way and um, i think it's really important to think about those i don't believe one size fits all so we have to have different strategy for different situations i would like to just um, raise two three examples child care costs in the uk that's one of the biggest expenditure line item for a family we don't get subsidies. This is mostly affecting women in academia. Very often, this is what happens. Women work part-time and to the detriment of their career. Insecure contracts, short-term contracts, again, um, impacting people losing out on pension contributions during maternity um, leave. So I think we have a lot of issues which could be solved at the, at the institutional level, and they are known, but... I think there are a lot of gaps. The second thing I would say is changing culture in institutions. I'm sure we'll talk more about it later, but um, I think this is where we see a lot of opportunities. Okay, but you know, for example, in the ESO, we we have uh, this kind of uh, let's say not I would not say quotas, but it's more an incentive. So we say, for example, for for our congresses, for our meetings, we have like a rule for gender balance that we try to keep. It's not always fifty percent, but what? So the question is first, what do you think of this? And the second is, you know, sometimes for a specific topic, you know, it's you would have someone who would say, yeah, I, I cannot find a female speaker here. And, you know, that's only my point of view, but I think that if you don't have these kind of measures, people tend to be lazy and yeah. tend to just to forget about it. And, you know, if it's not... I think very recently, maybe you've seen it on Twitter, there was a big storm. They organized a, a very eminent scientist panel looking at issues around reproductive health in some of the countries in Africa. And um, the panel was all male. So they had to retract it. It was a massive outcry. People refused to join, and it was really interesting. So I do think things are changing. Um, we've had, I think, the acceptance of this. So these are the, the things that we can do and we do. 
So in that way, I have a little bit of optimism of things changing in academia um, during hiring practices. During uh, we are just more aware. We don't maybe eliminate all the um, unconscious bias, but I think there is awareness of these particular things. What I'm talking about is there are other things that are deeper that the institutions should be thinking about, and they are not always so visible and so quick wins. And this is what I think we should be thinking more. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, uh, I think the literature would support that we address these things at a multi-pronged approach or take a multi-pronged approach and also target all the levels of the the university. Um, I feel like there's a tendency that uh, diversity initiatives are targeted at the, the highest leadership levels, and that's also important, but it's not enough. So in a, such a a fragmented institution as the university is, we have faculties and within the faculties, we have uh, departments and we have individual research groups and labs and so on. Um, this really requires, uh, a, 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 let's say, um, yeah, multi-level approach where everyone is involved. Uh, but also we know that we need a strong uh, commitment from the top. And of course, we need experts at basically all levels. So people who have knowledge, not just, um, um, I mean, uh, HR staff are, are all good and well-intentioned, but they also need no specific knowledge about how these things work and and how to, to work with different kinds of uh, interventions. And I would echo also what Dina just said, that it's this is a highly contextual matter because obviously there are differences in, in legal requirements, there are differences in culture, and, and all of these things filter in into how gender dynamics play out. And also within the university, we have different dynamics within um, the arts compared with the, with the natural and technical sciences. I usually come across the argument that because we have more women professors in the arts faculty, then there is no gender problem. Well, there's still gender, gender still exists in the art, in the arts. And it still is a factor that that shapes how we interact with each other. So it's just, it's a matter of, of finding out how gender then shapes access and possibilities. Uh, within the individual environments and then targeting um, specific interventions uh, at the local level. Um, but I also think that there is a missed opportunity sometimes that uh, sometimes it becomes too much of a top-down exercise uh, where uh, lots of academic uh, experts are not mobilized in developing the interventions that are implemented or are not uh, staff are uh, feel that they are sort of uh, forced to take part in in things uh, that they have had no say in um, and also there are lots of uh, uh, interest groups maybe there's an lgbtq plus uh, staff member association or maybe there's a student association that would be relevant to 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 invite into the rooms where these decisions are made it's not to exploit their efforts of course but to hear their perspectives because they they are usually the ones who suffer um the discrimination and the microaggressions and so on uh that that play out and I do think um, I would like to just conclude this. I totally agree. I've heard even senior female academics, and I say in different institutions, saying, well, I did it. I was able to do it. And I looked after my children. I did it all. And I think that type of attitude in front of young colleagues 
it's really not supportive and it's something about how people relate to each other the level of support recognizing that maybe things are more difficult now maybe it's more expensive to raise children and that's actually a fact and um, it's more insecurity that we have decline in global health funding. So there are lots of things that are different. And I think we have to be very sensitive that what has worked 10, 20 years ago may not work now. So, so I guess if I resume, so we should have an expert because right now in most institutions, there is someone responsible for gender equality, but it's someone, as you said, that has been appointed like who is usually on the side, a doctor and a pathologist for reason, or, and, and it's not really an expert in the topic. So we should have people who are really expert on the topic, independent of our specialty, of how we really come and, and educate us, I guess, in, in every level. And then the second thing is, I guess we need to go to a punitive measures, like, you know, because right now it's really incentives, like you should do that, you should, but as you you have a lot of measures, it seems that a lot of publication of how to improve and it's not implemented so we should we go to punitive measures you know that the government say put fine put like i don't know measure, also measure the issue you know know where is the issue where is the gap and 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 put fine to institution put fine to association that they don't respect the what do you think about that or? i would only say from the uk perspective uh, i was involved in the athena swan process maybe not all the listeners know but that's a national framework which is i think it's also in other countries which uh, obliges every university in the uk to comply in terms of recruitment and retention all these aspects supporting female stuff you have to uh, document and, and apply and have a level of achievement in that so it's measured with indicators and also involving the, the people who work in the university. Uh, so that's a requirement that has been, I think, extremely positive because we saw that um, even areas which the universities never looked at, um, they, they started to take interest and started to take a lot more case studies of people's experience and, um, and not to make it so top down. So I think this has been extremely valuable. So you need a bit of a both it's not one or the other but i do think these sort of regulatory measures are important because they send a signal that the university should work on this and i guess for that we need to monitor the issue i guess it will be mandatory because i had difficulty to find statistics you know yes the europe like the, the she figures the europe gives some numbers but specifically for example either specifically the french pathology association or i don't know about the uk pathology association uh, the medic med school different university it's not so easy to find really the numbers and and, and the monitor you know of, of this issue and i guess this will be something that will be kind of easy if i can say to implement and maybe it extremely important i just want to say i came across an article which was um very interesting looking at the cancer research fund which is uh, um you could apply for funding from them and the rate between women and men is um equal so that's a very positive thing but actually when you look at the number of people who apply uh, compared to the share in the uh population the number of academics in this area it's it's much lower so actually you have to be really careful what you measure and again if you throw in the ethnic composition you have much much lower um success rate tiny success rate for female academics so you what i'm saying you need to be really careful because you could choose indicators which are actually performing well and you could meet you could not have the full picture 
I agree. And I think really we should also not focus too much on the numbers. I mean, it's super important that we look at representation. But like you said, Dina, it's also uh, it's an intersectional question that women are not just women. Uh, so are we looking at a representation of white women or are we looking at a, a much uh, broader uh, um, categorization of, of women? So that's one thing. Of course, pay gap is also really important to have like hard numbers on. But there is such a literature uh, using qualitative uh, data. And I, I find that there is a really big uh, um, lack of use for that or recognition of all of that literature. So sometimes what we need to look at is not necessarily how many women is in the room, but how is it for a woman to exist in that room? And we know so much about this. Um, and I think that also this uh, fixation on numbers is also a way of disqualifying all of these numbers because it's not considered uh, <laughs> uh, generalizable findings or it's not, it's, I mean, these are just power dynamics playing out in a different way. This is a knowledge hierarchy that, that, dis, that disavows knowledge that we have. And this is also part of reproducing the status quo and not moving us any further. So sometimes I really feel like we should just we should look at the knowledge that's already available because we know we know what's going on and uh, and 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 trust that knowledge. Um, yeah, but also understand why why don't why don't we use it? Why why is it that we know a lot of things and but it's still sliding quotes or or no evidence is applied. Feminist knowledge is of course political, and people are can use that as a as a, a reason to dismiss it. And that's what's happening often, I think. Um, I guess we are, for us, like a doctor, we like numbers, you know, we are scientists, <laughs> we want to measure, we want, as you said, we, are, we have a documentation of all the qualitative study, but you're right. I would like to define the numbers one. in one sense. Um, I'm a qualitative researcher, I do a lot of mixed methods, but um, the numbers are important for one purpose. Uh, it, attracts attention, attracts attention. It's something that you could put in a newspaper, you could compare the institutions, uh, attracts attention hugely. That's the fact that if you see another institution doing really well, this institution, my institution starting to think. So this is what we see across the board in the UK. So quality uh, research is, I think, hugely important, but I think the numbers are, that there is a power there that power to for advocacy. I think they, they serve a really important purpose. I guess it's the balance between yeah quality and efficacy. You know, like it's of course as you say, yeah, like the quality of a qualitative study that will really it's amazing. But then it's on the efficacy that really pop up, you know, and people talk to people and can communicate easily with it. I guess we fall back to numbers and with all the bias that you explained. But uh, yeah. yeah, maybe a provocative question. Are there good or bad students within Europe or like large in the world? And how, if, if we are not going to rely on numbers, who, how would you define who is doing a good job and who is not doing a so good job? And how could we help these institutions or whatsoever to, to, to help them achieve something better in, uh, with regard to this problem? Do you want to go first, Dina? Yes, um, that's a... Interesting question, uh, but I think I'll also answer in a provocative way. I think um, we have the huge importance of social norms and context. So in some context, something may be acceptable. So I think it's more institution itself to say 
to measure its performance and its progression. So, and the people who work in these institutions. So if they think progress is being made, progress is being made. So maybe we should pay less attention to comparing. Maybe we should focus on within one institution, what progress can be made. And these things are very clear, felt to anybody who works in a particular institution. For me, I would say uh, I would like to see a little bit uh, less DEI washing going on at universities. I feel like uh, what's happening in many places is that a DEI officer is recruited and you put up a pride flag during pride month and then and that's about it in terms of of, of actual or sort of of action um so i i think that there is a, a need to take some bold steps uh i would like to see some leadership make some some unpopular decisions sometimes and uh and then i'm uh, one of my uh my key concerns at the moment really is uh that there should be a shift in focus from universities in terms of protecting the vulnerable and the precarious over the powerful because what we see now is that every time there is a a case of harassment a case of bullying a case of racism um the complaints cases really go uh don't go anywhere and usually it is the complainer uh, the the person who is victimized, who who suffers the hardest, because they are usually also the ones who are working in precarious uh, employment. So, bold moves, <laughs> brave and uh, and strong leadership. I I love to see that a bit of more often. And what would be your bold move if you had to give one or two bold moves that you think should be implemented in the next? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. What what would it be for you? Accountability. Accountability for the people who uh, misuse their power in the university, and that can be the leaderships themselves sometimes. And I would also like to see when when university uh, universities implement even sometimes ambitious gender equality plans or diversity in this initiatives that there is also an accountability on what they deliver. So that's back to measuring. And of course, we can look at the numbers, and that is valuable. But there are many many indicators that we should be should, that we should be evaluating the uh, the efforts that universities do, and many of course do them in the best of intention within. I would assume a genuine interest in actually making the universities uh, an inclusive space, an inclusive space to work or to study, um, but but also the outcomes of these evaluations are rarely made public, and I think that's part of the issue, right? That um, when universities implement uh, initiatives, they also risk a failure, and a failure is ba bad publicity. So it would be really, really bold for a university uh, to actually go out and say, well, we made this program, and here are our successes, and here are the places where we had some uh, unintended consequences or where we didn't reach our goals. And here, here is the way we're going to um, change our efforts going for, going forward in order to then um, uh, improve our results in the future. Because obviously, this is not a one-time thing. It's not one program and then it's done. It's, an, it's a long-term commitment to this. Thank you, yeah. And, and, and the, I guess I don't know if you have. I, I, I can bold, see my bold, my bold thing, my bold proposal. I think we should almost forget about gender for a moment and just think: what can I do to change the underlying structures in an academic institution that, by their effect, uh, harm women or cause problems? So, some I would say shifting away from 
the current individualistic, very competitive uh, culture of winning, grand, uh, winning and fighting. I think it's this sort of uh, situation in many countries and moving towards a more collaborative or inclusive work environment, which ultimately benefits women because when you consider the situation, women have to take time off. They have to often go on maternity leave. They have caring responsibilities. We have increasing number of people taking caring leave. And um, so I think this is something that if you change that for all, it will benefit women more. I think that's one thing. But the second is uh, really to think about, um, so when we talk about young with young colleagues and think about mentoring, offering various perks, what people tell us, I don't need that. My biggest, I, I like that. It's nice. But my biggest priority is job security. My biggest priority is continuous contract. My biggest priority is um, access to being confident, access to these networks. I never get invited to um, big speeches, although I work in this area. I don't get invited to, to give a keynote speech. So these are the problems that we face. They don't want small tinkering with the system. They really want change from the mental change. And I think that's where we have to, to, to go next if we want to make a difference. Okay, great. Uh, thanks, Andina. So what would be your key messages to the audience to, to wrap up today's discussion? I don't know who wants to start first. Maybe, yeah? Sure. Um, yeah, I would, uh, I would say it's a high time to end uh, performative allyship. Um, I was at a, gen a Women's Day event earlier this morning, and there was an auditorium full of women. I would really like to see the audience of this uh, uh, session. Next time there is a DEI, uh, diversity-related event at your university, I would like to see you go there and show up, because it's really necessary. As I mentioned earlier, uh, anti-gender movements is a real thing, and it's uh, it's uh, pressuring also feminist knowledge production in universities, and that's the knowledge we need to uh, need in order to actually make the changes that we're discussing today. Um, so yeah, uh, show up, please. <laughs> I would like to echo some of that, and um, I would like to just apart from what I said earlier, to mention that any sort of initiatives should really be targeted to, to the bread and butter of uh, being academic, creating knowledge, disseminating knowledge, engaging. So people really want support. They want support in publishing, they want support in getting grants, in surviving in academia and having a long-term future. They want to see future for themselves. What can we do to give them future? And I think needs to be both at high level, but also grassroots. People should organize. And maybe you know, but we have massive strikes in the UK right now um, in academic uh, world. And it is really, it's not specifically gender, but I think a lot of the issues are around that. So we need to collaborate more and at all levels. But the final thing that Air said already, um, I was talking to a few colleagues and we all felt there isn't something like a network just for women. So support sort of ways in which we can support each other, which are maybe quite gendered. And I think being there, showing up, I totally agree with this message. But I think we should think really um, kind of very ambitious and try to change how the universities operate, because think of how can we invest in young women and especially in early career where people are likely to sometimes 
change career, drop out. So how do we create future for them? And change the gender norms in our society. So we should all go on YouTube and do more of these <laughs> um, videos and events. Okay, great. Thank you very much to both of you. So uh, next week, uh, we will be uh, discussing CITES. Uh, remember uh, to become a member and join the ESOL family. Thank you, everyone.